0: Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Let's pray. God, we come to you in desperate need of hearing your word. We need to hear the truth. We need to be confronted by this gospel message. Lord, some of us need sin exposed in our lives so that we can be honest with ourselves, with you, with others. Lord, let us find hope and forgiveness in your word. Lord, some come with with questions, with doubts, wondering if this could even be true. Lord, show them the truth, the power of your gospel. Give the gift today of eternal life, life that begins now and lasts forever. Father, we come on this Father's Day rejoicing in the great privilege we have to call you our Father. We come thankful for the fathers in our lives who have shown us a glimpse, a reflection of your great love. Lord, we as fathers, ask that you would strengthen us to love our children well, to serve our families, to be sacrificial in our care and love. Father, we rejoice in the hope of Jesus and ask for your comfort, your blessing, your protection on us as fathers. Lord, for those today that, that mourn the loss of, of fathers, that, that struggle with, with a broken or distorted relationship, that have been sinned against, Lord, I pray that they would find their comfort and hope in you. Lord, strengthen us in the hope of the gospel, that you loved us enough to send your only Son, that we have the great joy and privilege of calling you our Father. And so we come today in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. In a 2002 Ikea commercial, a woman unplugs a red desk lamp and carries it out of her home, depositing it with a bag of garbage on the sidewalk. All right, That's how the University of Delaware professor Sarah Wasserman and her co-editor begin their book. The commercial continues, The weather turns windy and wintry. The camera lingers on the lamp, standing in the rain. Its shade and bulb turned longingly back toward the house. A Spare piano score emphasizes the sad fate of this little lamp. When the glow of a new lamp inside and the owner basking in its glow. But then suddenly a a man appears on screen and he addresses the camera in an exaggerated Nordic accent says, Many of you feel bad for this lamp. That's because you're crazy, it has no feelings. And the new lamp is much better. And then the IKEA logo pops up. The ad is considered iconic. It won all of the awards for that year, nationally, internationally. Yes, there are awards for advertising. The, the ad won because it was able to emotionally, very quickly, connect you with this little lamp. And then, ironically, tell you you are an idiot for having any feelings the lamp. It was a reminder that lamps outlive their usefulness. You need a new lamp. Go to Ikea. In some ways, that's, that's a biblical notion. The things of this world will pass away. But I don't think the tagline is really get rid of the old thing because the new one is better. Yet that's how we often feel. We often feel like, well, something new would be much better. A new car. A new house. A new job. A new gadget. A new relationship. A new boyfriend. That's what I really need in life, some of us think. We just don't have enough. We need newer. We need better. Because the desires of the world, whether they're shown to us by advertisers, or we go chasing them down ourselves. The desires of the world pass in front of our eyes. And the desires of this world then shape our hearts. And so, as, as John challenges us, we, we see, first of all, here this love of the world contrasted with the love of God. Now, listen to the command that John gives. And, and commands seem ordinary in our lives. People are all the time telling us what to do, but in John's writings in this letter, but in his gospel as well, commands, these imperative statements, are actually rather rare. It's rare that he actually stops and kind of points the finger at us and says, do this, do not do this. Most of the time he's just explaining, expounding, and you and I are meant to then take the command from what he's told us. But, but here he's explicit. Listen, look, look again at, at verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The command is clear. The contrast has been set. The love of the world versus the love of the Father. Now, now we, we have to stop and, and make sure we understand what John is saying, because initially it, it might seem like he's just flat out contradicting himself to tell us, do not love the the world. I mean, you know the most famous thing that John ever wrote it was back in his gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's, that's the statement that John makes it, telling the story of Jesus in his gospel. He, he point blank says, God loves the world. And, and so what is he saying? Is he contradicting himself? Well, Well, no, there's there are, there are two different ways, at least two different ways that John uses that, that description, the world. And, and we, we see it in both the, the positive sense of, of just the world that God made, the people that live in the world. And that's, that's what he's saying in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. God loved the world that he made, the people who live there. But then there's this negative connotation, this negative description that John has when he talks about the world. The the place in which sinful people have rebelled against a good and loving God. One one commentator says that to to describe the world in this way is, is to say, this is life where God does not rule. Or another, this is the world of humanity steeped in sin. So yes, God loves us enough that he sent his son, but you and I are not meant to love the things of this world, not meant to love the, the, the orientation of this world, the, the sinful desires of this world, the passions of this world. See, to love the world is to be taken up by all that is in the world rather than to focus our attention on God. The contrast is, is total. You will either love the world or you will love God. Because authentic love for God, one commentator says, authentic love for God exists only when it has no rivals. True love for God is when you reject rival, rival desires and say, no, no, I will give my whole life, everything I have to God. And it's because the, the contrast here is, is of the very place from which love comes. The love of the world comes not from God, but from sinful desires, from the desires of this world. And yet, yet he says in verse 16 that these desires come not from the Father, but from the world. But true love, authentic love, sacrificial love, love that puts the, the needs of others above your own, that's the kind of love that comes from the Father. And again, on Father's Day, perhaps it's worth emphasizing this point. You and I have the joyful privilege of calling God the creator of all things, the judge who stands in holy and perfect righteousness. We have the privilege of calling him Father, of knowing his love, of not being afraid to cry or to to disrupt, because... It's the love of God. And see, and that's why, why the whimpering of children is necessary in churches. Because that's what the church is supposed to sound like. A place where fathers hold their children so that they can hear the word of God. That's the, the, the tender image that you and I have of God's love for us. He holds us and cares for us and loves us. We can call him Father. And So John says, do not love the world. Or anything in the world. Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you desire the things of this world, then you have rejected true love. You've turned away from from God's love. Now, Now we might think, we might think, hey, I think John just needs to take a deep breath. I think he needs to chill out a little bit. I think he needs to lighten up. He needs to have a little bit of fun. Because it seems like by this point in his life, he's just this grumpy old man, this pastor sort of pointing his finger down at, at others and telling them, stop having any fun. That those things that, that used to bring you joy, stop doing them. Your world should have no joy and no fun in it. That's, that's how we can hear this kind of language. When, when John says, do not love the world. And maybe you actually think that's, that's the problem with, with religion, that it's just a list of rules, or maybe Christianity specifically, that the Christians seem so intent on telling you what not to do that they've, they've sucked all the fun out of life. All right now, we have to admit, John's command is pretty clear. So we can't set it aside. Do not love the world. That's the direct command. But it's not because John wants to stop his church from having any fun. It's that he wants them to find true and meaningful joy. He wants to set them free from desires which control and enslave them. He wants to to move them from the love of this world, which is fleeting, which is passing, which is destructive, and place them under the realm of God's good love. See, it's, it's actually generous to tell people the safe way, the right way to do things. I, I, re- I remember as a, as a kid mowing lawns in my neighborhood to, to make a little bit of extra money. And um, I, didn't, I didn't realize that this was a, was a danger. But if you start a lawnmower on a gravel driveway, right, you know what happens, right? So when my mother sees me about to pull the, what does she do? She yells, stop! Because if you let people, Pull lawnmower cords on gravel driveways, people and things get hurt, and kids lose eyes. See, to stop someone from doing something destructive is not unloving. It's the only loving response from a parent. And that's what what John is doing here. He's telling the church, he, he said it back in verse one, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. He's telling them this for their own good. Don't pull that cord. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt others. Turn from that sin and find love in the Father. See, that's, that's not taking the fun out of life. That's setting you free to actually enjoy life as you were meant to. So we've seen the, the contrast between the, the love of the world and the love of the Father, an absolute contrast. But, but, but let's, let, let's look, look a little bit further and, and see how, how love's desires can be distorted. Look at verse 16. His his argument for why you should turn from the things of this world is, is there, verse 16. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. He's showing us the desires of our hearts. Now that word translated in our passage, cravings or lust. It, it can just be used in, a, in an ordinary sense, even a positive sense for desires. It's used, we're, we're told, I read this, I didn't actually go and count all of them, 38 times in the New Testament that word desire. But only three of them are positive. Like the desire for something good. Overwhelmingly, 35 times, and, and it's, it's pretty clear here, it's a desire for something that is bad. It's a sinful desire desire. It's an inordinate desire. It's a wrong, misplaced desire. It is a craving. It is lust. And so that's what John is telling us to avoid. The cravings, the evil, sinful desires of the sinful man. Those cravings which well up, not not merely because an advertiser tells you you need it. See, we can't blame the the one who, who puts it before us, we, where does the blame come from sinful man? It comes from within us. See, all the best advertisers are doing is tapping into the, your own longings already, telling you what you already want, and just telling you where to buy it. They don't have to create the desire. The desire is there, the cravings of sinful man. And then, and then John becomes explicit, telling us what, this, what these sinful desires look like. That phrase, the lust of his eyes. The translators have captured it well. The lust that results from the things we see. Uh, One of the commentators I read this week says, Godless eyes glance about for the illicit. Godless eyes go searching after things they think will bring joy. Your eyes can lead you to sin, but not because your eyes are bad, because your heart is bad. The dangers of lust caused by our eyes. And, and in many ways, this, this should be easy for us as modern people to think about, to consider, when we have before our very eyes the whole world at our fingertips. Anything you could want to see. You know what? I don't even have to touch it. I can just tell it what to show me, and it will make it magically appear. The lusts of my eyes, right here, oh, shining back from this little screen at me. Seeing that now, the obvious dangers are the, the, the lusts of pornography, where we, at ready access, chase after our own sinful desires, distorting the God given purposes of, of sexuality and joy within a loving marriage. And chase after our desires, the lusts of our eyes. And it's easier today than ever before. Because you don't even have to go looking for it. It seems to just find you and chase after you. And so we are told to not love the things of this world, to, to set aside the lusts of our eyes. But, but the danger is not merely in, in seeking out that which is, is explicitly sinful— It's even looking at things that are good and then loving them more than we should. See, it's okay to love some things in this world if you love them in in the right way, if you love them as gifts given to you by God. The problem is our hearts don't often work that way. The lust of our eyes doesn't have to be only a sexual desire. It can just be a covetous desire, a desire for something someone else has. And that's the very way advertisers get you to buy stuff. Because, well, you know what, this model, it's kind of old. But there's a newer, shinier one. Or we, we've added a, a driver in our house. And so at times, juggling two cars with three drivers, I think, well, wouldn't this be easier if we just had a, another car? And, well, why would we buy one for him? He just started driving. We should buy one for me. And so I can scroll through and see the shiny new cars. And there are some really good deals on cars. You could save thousands if you go right now and buy one. I mean, I would be saving my family money. See, that's the way the lust of the eyes work. And maybe, maybe new cars, that's not for you. You don't care. You think, Kevin, that's stupid. You do realize as soon as you drive it off the lot, it will be worth two-thirds of what it was when you paid for it. It is only a depreciating asset that's, that's going to only cost you money in the end. You're going to have to pour insurance into that and, and maintenance and, and gasoline and new tires, and, and it's just not worth it, Kevin. But the advertisements that catch your eyes are other things. But you see, it's, this, it's the same root, covetousness. The lust of the eyes make us think, I need to have something better. Or even just think of of the dangers of being always distracted. We We as people, have you noticed if you sit in a waiting room, you used to, maybe in the past, maybe I'm old enough to just remember this, you used to actually have to sometimes talk to the other people. I mean, you could pick up a magazine and make clear you didn't want to talk to anybody. But now it would be hard to find somebody to talk to. Because they're all, whether they have 10 seconds to wait in line or... A half an hour in a waiting room they're occupied and so to even begin a conversation would be to to interrupt them I, I was I was in 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 preparing for this lesson or this, this sermon looking back at a lesson I taught ten years ago to our middle school and high school students here and in it I had statistics about how many hours a day they they have screens in front of them and it actually when you added it all up it was it was too many because students often have multiple screens in front of them. But that was when these things were new and most students didn't have them in their pockets. I mean, the statistics would be, would be much worse today the number of hours of your attention this consumes. And actually, I wouldn't only be complaining about middle schoolers and high schoolers, although students, this can be a problem for you. Moms and dads, this is a problem for all of us. The danger of our eyes always being distracted from the people around us, from the needs around us, from the, the work we could be doing for the sake of the gospel. See, the desires of our eyes, the lusts of our eyes, is to always think, I need something else. But it's not merely our eyes that cause the problem, it's, it's everything that we are. The, the boasting of what he has and does, that's the phrase here in verse 16 that the cravings of the sinful man are shown in the lust of his eyes and in the boasting of what he has and and, and does and, and it, literally it just it says pride of life but the translation here is really helpful because that description is everything that i that i identify myself as everything that i have done my very life well that's where i that's where i'm proud and so boasting of what i what i have and what i do that's a good description of the way my heart works See, now, I've, I've, I've set up advertisers today a little bit as the bad guy, and that's really unfair because all they're doing is giving you what you want. If you didn't buy their stuff, they would stop advertising it to you in that way. They would come up with maybe different ways, more creative, perhaps more provocative ways, but, 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 but maybe you think, well, you know what, I'm much more self-aware than those people who fall for those foolish advertisements. I don't believe the simple lies that if I just get this product or that shampoo, that my life will be perfect. See, I'm smarter than that. I know the difference between what I need and what I want. I have this conversation with the kids in my household fairly regularly about the difference between a need and a want. And yet we live in a world where I just told you a dilemma that I face is, are two cars enough for my family? Because I live in a a culture, in a world, in a society that says, well, of course not. Of course that wouldn't be enough. I literally walk to work. (laughs) And yet, I think I can't get by without a third car, even though one of my cars already doesn't go very far when it goes anywhere. See, and yet I think I'm smarter than the advertisers because I only see the most obvious instances of where they're trying to manipulate me. Because my heart is so easily manipulatable. It wants to be turned toward the things of this world. Because the very sin that lurks within me wants to chase after something that I think, if I grab it now, then my life will be meaningful and purposeful. And so I can take the very things that I have done, my very identity, my very life, and pride myself on my achievements, on my accomplishments. But you realize the danger in this, boasting, the language here is really helpful to show us the the danger, the boasting of what he has and does. See, when when John talks about the sinful world, he's not talking about it just in the abstract. He's talking about it in the personal. A man chasing the lust of his eyes, boasting in what he has and what he does. And it's easy for us to value our lives based on our accomplishments. Wh- wh- whatever the measure is, whether the measure is the, or, or the number of zeros at the end of the, the document in your bank statements, whether the, whether the number is how much above 100 you are in, in the genius rankings, wh- whatever it is, how, how, wherever you're graduating in your class and you say, this makes me valuable. The pride is so easy to see then. Well, it's at least easy to see in you, Right? It's harder to see in me. I don't mean it's harder for you to see in me. It's harder for me to see in me because that's the way boasting works. Boasting is is the distortion where I tell you something. It might be factually true, but the value I place on it doesn't match its real value. So I tell you, look at what I have accomplished. And you say, that's true. And I place this enormous value on the accomplishment and you say, that doesn't make sense. But that's what boasting does. It distorts my very view of life, and so it leads me arrogant and proud. But the danger, if we're measuring our lives, or we're boasting in, in who we are and what we've done, well, there's also the danger that if I fail, I'll be destroyed. That if I don't succeed to the level I think I should, then I'll feel worthless. See, boasting leads either to pride or to despair. To trust, but, but in the end, I'm, I'm trusting entirely myself. And, and John is saying, do not love the world or anything in the world. And you can see how, how this, this passage is, is built together then, where he's telling us about, about the love of the world and where it came from, comes from sinful desires in this world, and where it's going. Look at verse 17. The world and its desires pass away. But the contrast has been set. Clearly, the love that comes, the the love, true love, comes from the Father, and where is it going? Well, verse 17 continues. The man who does the will of God lives forever. See, the world and its desires will pass away. That's where it all ends. I uh, found a cassette tape recently kids that used to you used to be able to record on those they're like little rectangles that you'd put into a machine and it would play music or sound well i found one from when i was on wvmm the college radio station where i went to school now that does you know i, I really can't boast on that because i don't think the signal even reached the very edge of campus let alone reaching beyond campus and my time slot was midnight to 2 a.m. So which on a college campus there are a couple people still listening, still up goofing around, maybe finishing papers, but but I didn't didn't have, you know, wasn't a prime slot. I actually our job at the end was to physically turn off the radio station when we left. And it came back on then sometime mid-morning, I think. Um but I, but I found a cassette tape of one, of one of the broadcasts that my friend Brandon and I did together. And I put it into the tape player, wanting to, wanting to play some of it. And do you know what I heard? Just about nothing. Because the problem was that magnetic tape in the intervening years since I graduated from college had deteriorated almost entirely to the point that all you could hear was <laughs> a little bit of, and you could hear a little bit of music, and then it would fade away to nothing. And then a little bit of something would come back in, But I'm pretty sure that just me listening to it that one time now has destroyed it to ever be heard again. Because most of the things of this world—now, I know you're all horribly disappointed that you will never get to hear me on the radio in college. But most of the things in this world are ephemeral. They don't last. They disappear. I mean, many things in this world we expect to be such— we, we, we expect a, a flyer for a, a lost dog to be taken down when the dog is found. There are certain things that we don't ex- expect to last for posterity to be, to be around for, for generations. But the reality is what John is saying is the world and its desires pass away. Everything around you is ephemeral. Everything is here but for a moment. Everything is passing away in this world. Except the man who does the will of God. The true believer, the true follower of Jesus, he or she will live forever. The things of this world don't last. And, and you see it even, not just, we don't have to get all the way to the end of history for you to see that the things of this world don't last. I mean, that new toy that you had to have as a kid, right? I mean, think of that thing that you really, really wanted. So many of them just pass away within a day or two or maybe it's even as the gift is opened and the box is more fun than the toy that was inside but the same happens for us that new car doesn't stay new very long the things of this world are ephemeral they do not last but john is telling us the one who does the will of god will live forever this is the gift of eternal life that he has been speaking about that if you love God and follow after him, then you have life everlasting. You have it right now, and it will last forever. And yet, the, 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 the way John is describing it is not merely that, that we need to just stop loving the world and then just start being better at loving other people, better at loving God. No, when he, when he describes here the will of God, he's talking then specifically about what is God's will for us. Well, we, we know God's will because John tells us repeatedly. And, and it, perhaps the, the most clear place is, is if you flip back to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. So, so we're leaving 1 John. We'll come back so you can stick your bullets in there to, to find it quickly. But, but go to the Gospel of John. And so it's just labeled John in your Bibles. It's, it follows Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's before the book of Acts. It's the account that John wrote of the life of Jesus. And in John chapter 6, Jesus, having fed the the 5,000 and then walked on water, Jesus now explains why he came. Not merely to give people a meal, which will be digested and then done with, but to give them life eternal. And so in John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says to the listening crowd, he says, For I have come down from heaven... Not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus is saying, I came not merely to to seek after the things of this world, not merely for my own pleasure, I came to do the will of God who sent me. And now verse 39 of John chapter 6. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Father's will is the grand purpose of history. It's the rescue of sinners. Jesus says, I will hold on to you forever. I'll lose none of you, none whom God has given me. In verse 40, everyone who looks to the Son, who trusts in Jesus for salvation... And believes in Jesus shall have eternal life. And so what are we, what are we being told then in 1 John when when, when he tells us to, to do the will of God who lives forever? What is the will of God? It's to look to Jesus and believe in him. And he'll, he'll be more explicit as he goes through the, the rest of this book. He'll, he'll say: the will of God is to believe in Jesus and to show the love of Jesus to others. See, but you and I need, we need first to look to Jesus. See, if, if you miss that, that, that point, then you've missed the context that we have in 1 John. Because I only read three verses to us. But if you read it and say, stop loving the world, start loving God. Kevin, stop loving the world. Kevin, start loving God. Then who am I trusting? Kevin. Well, we know where that goes either to despair in my failure, ultimately, or boasting in my temporary success. But what is John really telling us in the context? Remember, the the context is verse 12. I write to you, dear children, I write to you, church, because your sins have been forgiven on account of Jesus' name. Or or look back to to verse 2 of 1 John chapter 2. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so what is the answer? Kevin, stop loving the world. Jesus loves you. Now, you can love the Father. See, the love of Jesus is essential in this equation. Because otherwise, all I would be doing is doubling down on the boasting of what I have and do, on the lust of, of, of what I see around me. I need to turn my attention from the things of this world to the one who came from another world. The one who came from heaven, who gave his life for me, who forgave my sins, who is the atoning sacrifice for my sins. When we seek God's will, then we are freed from the control of lust. We are freed from the tyranny of our sinful desires because Jesus destroys our pride. Because to come to Jesus forces you to admit your helplessness the starting point for you today, if you want to be one who does the will of God, is to look to Jesus, to trust in him, to admit your sinfulness. But the continuing path for you as one who wants to do the will of God is to look to Jesus, to turn from sin, to admit your helplessness, to trust fully and totally in in Jesus. We are enabled to do the will of the Father, And that's an active command. It's it's the, the continuous work that we must do. Looking to Jesus, following after Jesus, he gives the gifts of eternal life. He gives us joy in doing the will of God the Father and showing us the love of God. Now, last year, IKEA took that 2002 commercial and they fixed it. They kind of recognized that culturally we've gotten from the place where like just throwing away a perfectly good lamp seems totally irresponsible. So they put out a new commercial. It begins the next morning, that same sad little red lamp looking longingly up at its home. But then you see little yellow boots come into the screen. A little girl turns the lamp face toward her and picks up the lamp and puts it in her wagon and takes it home. She has rescued the sad little lamp. She goes home and finds a new Ikea bulb whose price pops up onto the screen. Only $1.49. She scrolls it in and basks in the glow of the light. She plays with the lamp, plays board games with her family. She makes shadow puppets. She reads with her parents before bed. And the commercial ends with the little lamp, with its happy ending, now in the window, and then the same actor pops onto the screen. And this time he, he says, Many of you feel happy for this lamp. That's not crazy. Rescuing things is much better. Then the same logo appears on the screen. A much more self-aware, a much more self-conscious kind of commercial, much more responsible commercial. Yet I'm not really sure their motives have changed all that much. Have they? Yeah, you don't need to waste money on a new lamp because this one still works. But that money you saved could be spent on a very nice sofa. And you can get it very cheaply because we'll make you do all of the work of putting it together. <laughs> See, while the advertising message may have changed, our desires haven't, right? Right? We still want the new thing. The lamp is new to the little girl. The same desires are at work in our lives. Even if we save money by reusing the the old lamp, we're just going to spend it elsewhere. But that line of reusing things is much better. Of rescuing, it's much better. Because the little girl rescued... See, the biblical answer to our desires gets at their very core where our desires begin. God transforms our hearts so that we can do the will of God. It involves the active denial of the love of this world, turning from the lust of our eyes, turning and rejecting the boasting of our accomplishments because we turn to Jesus. We find in him the love of God because Jesus is our rescuer. See, the emotional impact of the commercial is that the lamp is rescued. Someone has come along just as the trash truck pulls up to the curb and the trash is being dumped in. The little girl saves the lamp. The world and its desires pass away. You were headed toward destruction. And yet you have been rescued because Jesus Did the will of the Father. Jesus gave his life for you. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lasts and lives forever. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you for the great joy and privilege of knowing your love through Jesus, our Savior, Jesus, our Rescuer. So, God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, the name by which we find forgiveness of sins. Lord, do that work. Give that joy, even now, to those who have not yet confessed their faith in you. Lord, let let us now do the will that you you have shown to us by putting our trust in Jesus. Lord, let us see the depth of his love, the greatness of his rescue. Father, we come in Jesus' name, rejoicing in the hope of the God. In a 2002 IKEA commercial, A woman unplugs a red desk lamp and carries it out of her home, depositing it with a bag of garbage on the sidewalk. All right, that's how the University of Delaware professor Sarah Wasserman and her co-editor begin their book. The commercial continues, the weather turns windy and wintry. The camera lingers on the lamp, standing in the rain, its shade and bulb turned longingly back toward the house. A spare piano score emphasizes the sad fate of this little lamp. When the glow of a new lamp inside and the owner basking in its glow. But then suddenly a, a man appears on screen and he addresses the camera in an exaggerated Nordic accent says, Many of you feel bad for this lamp. That's because you're crazy. It has no feelings. And the new lamp is much better. And then the IKEA logo pops up. The ad is considered iconic. It won all of the awards for that year, nationally, internationally. Yes, there are awards for advertising. The the ad won because it was able to emotionally, very quickly, connect you with this little lamp. And then, ironically, tell you, you are an idiot for having any feelings toward the lamp. It was a reminder that lamps outlive their usefulness. You need a new lamp. Go to Ikea. In some ways, that's, that's a biblical notion. The things of this world will pass away. But I don't think the tagline is really, get rid of the old thing because the new one is better. Yet, that's how we often feel we often feel like, well, something new would be much better. A new car, a new house, a new job, a new gadget, a new relationship, a new boyfriend. That's what I really need in life, some of us think. We just don't have enough. We need newer, we need better. Because the desires of the world, whether... They're shown to us by advertisers, or we go chasing them and down ourselves. The desires of the world pass in front of our eyes. And the desires of this world then shape our hearts. And so as as John challenges us, we we see, first of all, here this love of the world contrasted with the love of God. Listen to the command that John gives. And and commands seem ordinary in our lives. People are all the time telling us what to do, but in John's writings in this letter, but in his gospel as well, commands, these imperative statements are actually rather rare. It's rare that he actually stops and kind of points the finger at us and says, do this, do not do this. Most of the time he's just explaining, expounding, and you and I are meant to then take the command from what he's told us. But, but here he's explicit. Listen, look, look again at, at verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The command is clear. The contrast has been set. The love of the world versus the love of the Father. Now, now we, we have to stop and, and make sure we understand what John is saying, because initially it, it might seem like he's just flat out contradicting himself to tell us, do not love the the world. I mean, you know the most famous thing that John ever wrote it was back in his gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's, that's the statement that John makes it, telling the story of Jesus in his gospel. He, he point blank says, God loves the world. And, and so what is he saying? Is he contradicting himself? Well, Well, no, there's there are are two different ways, at least two different ways that John uses that that description, the world. And and we we see it in both the the positive sense of of just the world that God made, the people that live in the world. And that's that's what he's saying in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. God loved the world that he made, the people who live there. But then there's this negative connotation, this negative description that John has when he talks about the world. The, the place in which sinful people have rebelled against a good and loving God. One, one commentator says that, that, to, that to describe the world in this way is, is to say, this is life where God does not rule. Or another, this is the world of humanity steeped in sin. So yes, God loves us enough that he sent his son. But you and I are not meant to love the things of this world, not meant to love the, the, the orientation of this world, the, the sinful desires of this world, the passions of this world. See, to love the world is to be taken up by all that is in the world rather than to focus our attention on God. The contrast is, is total. You will either love the world or you will love God. Because authentic love for God, one commentator says, authentic love for God exists only when it has no rivals. True love for God is when you reject rival, rival desires and say, no, no, I will give my whole life, everything I have to God. And it's because the, the contrast here is, is of the very place from which love comes. The love of the world comes not from God, but from sinful desires, from the desires of this world. And yet, yet he says in verse 16 that these desires come not from the Father, but from the world. But true love, authentic love, sacrificial love, love that puts the, the needs of others above your own, that's the kind of love that comes from the Father. And again, on Father's Day, perhaps it's worth emphasizing this point. You and I have the joyful privilege of calling God the creator of all things, the judge who stands in holy and perfect righteousness. We have the privilege of calling him Father, of knowing his love, of not being afraid to cry or to to disrupt, because... It's the love of God. And see, and that's why why the whimpering of children is necessary in churches. Because that's what the church is supposed to sound like a place where fathers hold their children so that they can hear the word of God. That's the, the, the tender image that you and I have of God's love for us. He holds us and cares for us and loves us. We can call him Father. And so John says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you desire the things of this world, then you have rejected true love. You've turned away from from God's love. Now, Now, we might think, we might think, hey, I think John just needs to take a deep breath. I think he needs to chill out a little bit. I think he needs to lighten up. He needs to have a little bit of fun. Because it seems like by this point in his life, he's just this grumpy old man, this pastor sort of pointing his finger down at, at others and telling them, stop having any fun. That Those things that, that used to bring you joy, stop doing them. Your world should have no joy and no fun in it. That's, that's how we can hear this kind of language. When, when John says, do not love the world. And maybe you actually think that's, that's the problem with, with religion, that it's just a list of rules, or maybe Christianity specifically, that the Christians seem so intent on telling you what not to do that they've, they've sucked all the fun out of life. All right now, we have to admit, John's command is pretty clear. So we can't set it aside. Do not love the world. That's the direct command. But it's not because John wants to stop his church from having any fun. It's that he wants them to find true and meaningful joy. He wants to set them free from desires which control and enslave them. He wants to to move them from the love of this world, which is fleeting, which is passing, which is destructive, and place them under the realm of God's good love. See, it's, it's actually generous to tell people the safe way, the right way to do things. I, I, re- I remember as a, as a kid mowing lawns in my neighborhood to, to make a little bit of extra money, and um, I, didn't, I didn't realize that this was a was a danger, but if you start a lawn mower on a gravel driveway, right you know what happens, right? So when my mother sees me about to pull the what does she do? she yells, "Stop!" Because if you let people pull lawnmower cords on gravel driveways people and things get hurt and kids lose eyes see to stop someone from doing something destructive is not unloving it's the only loving response from a parent and that's what that's what john is doing here he's telling the church he he said it back in verse one my dear children i write this to you so that you will not sin he's telling them this for their own good don't pull that cord you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt others. Turn from that sin and find love in the Father. See, that's, that's not taking the fun out of life. That's setting you free to actually enjoy life as you were meant to. So we've seen the, the contrast between the, the love of the world and the love of the Father, an absolute contrast. But, but, but let's, let, let's look, look a little bit further and, and see how, how love's desires can be distorted. Look at verse 16. His his argument for why you should turn from the things of this world is, is there, verse 16. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. He's showing us the desires of our hearts. Now that word translated in our passage, cravings or lust. It, it can just be used in, a, in an ordinary sense, even a positive sense for desires. It's used, we're, we're told, I read this, I didn't actually go and count all of them, 38 times in the New Testament that word desire. But only three of them are positive, like the desire for something good. Overwhelmingly, 35 times, and it's, it's pretty clear here, it's a desire for something that is bad. It's a sinful desire desire. It's an inordinate desire. It's a wrong, misplaced desire. It is a craving. It is lust. And so that's what John is telling us to avoid. The cravings, the evil, sinful desires of the sinful man. Those cravings which well up, not not merely because an advertiser tells you you need it. See, we can't blame the the one who, who puts it before us, we, where does the blame come from sinful man? It comes from within us. See, all the best advertisers are doing is tapping into the, your own longings already, telling you what you already want, and just telling you where to buy it. They don't have to create the desire. The desire is there, the cravings of sinful man. And then, and then John becomes explicit, telling us what, this, what these sinful desires look like. That phrase, the lust of his eyes. The translators have captured it well. The lust that results from the things we see. Uh, One of the commentators I read this week says, Godless eyes glance about for the illicit. Godless eyes go searching after things they think will bring joy. Your eyes can lead you to sin, but not because your eyes are bad, because your heart is bad. The dangers of lust caused by our eyes. And, and in many ways, this, this should be easy for us as modern people to think about, to consider, when we have before our very eyes the whole world at our fingertips. Anything you could want to see. You know what? I don't even have to touch it. I can just tell it what to show me, and it will make it magically appear. The lusts of my eyes, right here, oh, shining back from this little screen at me. Seeing that now the obvious dangers are the, the, the lusts of pornography, where we at ready access chase after our own sinful desires, distorting the God-given purposes of, of sexuality and joy within a loving marriage. And chase after our desires, the lusts of our eyes. And it's easier today than ever before. Because you don't even have to go looking for it. It seems to just find you and chase after you. And so we are told to not love the things of this world, to, to set aside the lusts of our eyes. But, but the danger is not merely in, in seeking out that which is, is explicitly sinful, It's even looking at things that are good and then loving them more than we should. See, it's okay to love some things in this world if you love them in in the right way, if you love them as gifts given to you by God. The problem is our hearts don't often work that way. The lust of our eyes doesn't have to be only a sexual desire. It can just be a covetous desire, a desire for something someone else has. And that's the very way advertisers get you to buy stuff. Because, well, you know what, this model, it's kind of old. But there's a newer, shinier one. Or we, we've added a, a driver in our house, and so at times, juggling two cars with three drivers, I think, well, wouldn't this be easier if we just had a, another car? And, well, why would we buy one for him? He just started driving. We should buy one for me. And so I can scroll through and see the shiny new cars. And there are some really good deals on cars. You could save thousands if you go right now and buy one. I mean, I would be saving my family money. See, that's the way the lust of the eyes work. And maybe, maybe new cars, that's not for you. You don't care. You think, Kevin, that's stupid. You do realize as soon as you drive it off the lot, it will be worth two-thirds of what it was when you paid for it. It is only a depreciating asset that's, that's going to only cost you money in the end. You're going to have to pour insurance into that, and, and maintenance, and, and gasoline, and new tires, and, and it's just not worth it, Kevin. But the advertisements that catch your eyes are other things. But you see, it's, this, it's the same root, covetousness. The lust of the eyes make us think, I need to have something better. Or even just think of of the dangers of being always distracted. We We as people, have you noticed if you sit in a waiting room, you used to, maybe in the past, maybe I'm old enough to just remember this, you used to actually have to sometimes talk to the other people. I mean, you could pick up a magazine and make clear you didn't want to talk to anybody. But now it would be hard to find somebody to talk to. Because they're all, whether they have 10 seconds to wait in line or... Half an hour in a waiting room, they're occupied, and so to even begin a conversation would be to to interrupt them. I, I was I was in 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 preparing for this lesson or this this sermon, looking back at a lesson I taught ten years ago to our middle school and high school students here, and in it I had statistics about how many hours a day they, they have screens in front of them, and it actually when you added it all up, it was it was too many because students often have multiple screens in front of them. But that was when these things were new and most students didn't have them in their pockets. I mean, the statistics would be, would be much worse today the number of hours of your attention this consumes. And actually, I wouldn't only be complaining about middle schoolers and high schoolers, although students, this can be a problem for you. Moms and dads, this is a problem for all of us. The danger of our eyes always being distracted from the people around us, from the needs around us, from the, the work we could be doing for the sake of the gospel. See, the desires of our eyes, the lusts of our eyes, is to always think, I need something else. But it's not merely our eyes that cause the problem, it's, it's everything that we are. The, the boasting of what he has and does, that's the phrase here in verse 16. The, the cravings of the sinful man are shown in the lust of his eyes and in the boasting of what he has and, and, and does. And, and it, literally, it just it says pride of life. But the translation here is really helpful because that description is everything that I, that I identify myself as, everything that I have done my very life, well, that's where, I, that's where I'm proud. And so boasting of what I, what I have and what I do, that's a good description of the way my heart works. See, now, I've, I've, I've set up advertisers today a little bit as the bad guy, and that's really unfair because all they're doing is giving you what you want. If you didn't buy their stuff, they would stop advertising it to you in that way. They would come up with maybe different ways, more creative, perhaps more provocative ways, but, 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 but maybe you think, well, you know what, I'm much more self-aware than those people who fall for those foolish advertisements. I don't believe the simple lies that if I just get this product or that shampoo, that my life will be perfect. See, I'm smarter than that. I know the difference between what I need and what I want. I have this conversation with the kids in my household fairly regularly about the difference between a need and a want. And yet we live in a world where I just told you a dilemma that I face is, are two cars enough for my family? Because I live in a a culture, in a world, in a society that says, well, of course not. Of course that wouldn't be enough. I literally walk to work. (laughs) And yet, I think I can't get by without a third car. Even though one of my cars already doesn't go very far when it goes anywhere. See, and yet I think I'm smarter than the advertisers because I only see the most obvious instances of where they're trying to manipulate me. Because my heart is so easily manipulatable. It wants to be turned toward the things of this world. Because the very sin that lurks within me wants to chase after something that I think, if I grab it now, then my life will be meaningful and purposeful. And so I can take the very things that I have done, my very identity, my very life, and pride myself on my achievements, on my accomplishments. But you realize the danger in this, boasting, the language here is really helpful to show us the the danger, the boasting of what he has and does. See, when when John talks about the sinful world, he's not talking about it just in the abstract. He's talking about it in the personal. A man chasing the lust of his eyes, boasting in what he has and what he does. And it's easy for us to value our lives based on our accomplishments. Wh- whatever the measure is, whether the measure is the, or, or the number of zeros at the end of the, the document in your bank statements, whether the, whether the number is how much above 100 you are in, in the genius rankings, Wh- whatever it is, how, how, wherever you're graduating in your class and you say, this makes me valuable. The pride is so easy to see then. Well, it's at least easy to see in you, Right? It's harder to see in me. I don't mean it's harder for you to see in me. It's harder for me to see in me because that's the way boasting works. Boasting is is the distortion where I tell you something. It might be factually true, but the value I place on it doesn't match its real value. So I tell you, look at what I have accomplished, and you say, that's true. And I place this enormous value on the accomplishment, and you say, that doesn't make sense. But that's what boasting does. It distorts my very view of life, and so it leads me arrogant and proud. But the danger, if we're measuring our lives, or we're boasting in in who we are and what we've done, well, there's also the danger that if I fail, I'll be destroyed. That if I don't succeed to the level I think I should, then I'll feel worthless. See, boasting leads either to pride or to despair. To trust, but, but in the end, I'm, I'm trusting entirely myself. And, and John is saying, do not love the world or anything in the world. And you can see how, how this, this passage is, is built together then, where he's telling us about, about the love of the world and where it came from, comes from sinful desires in this world, and where it's going. Look at verse 17. The world and its desires pass away. But the contrast has been set clearly. The love that comes, the the love, true love, comes from the Father. And where is it going? Well, verse seventeen continues: "The man who does the will of God lives forever." See, the world and its desires will pass away. That's where it all ends. I uh, found a cassette tape recently. Kids, that used to, you used to be able to record on those. They're like little rectangles that you'd put into a machine and it would play music or sound. Well, I found one from when I was on WVMM, the college radio station where I went to school. Now, that does, you know, I, I really can't boast in that because I don't think the signal even reached the very edge of campus, let alone reaching beyond campus. And my time slot was midnight to 2 a.m. So which on a college campus there are a couple people still listening, still up goofing around, maybe finishing papers, but but I didn't didn't have, you know, wasn't a prime slot. I actually our job at the end was to physically turn off the radio station when we left. And it came back on then sometime mid-morning, I think. Um but I, but I found a cassette tape of one, of one of the broadcasts that my friend Brandon and I did together. And I put it into the tape player, wanting to, wanting to play some of it. And do you know what I heard? Just about nothing. Because the problem was that magnetic tape in the intervening years since I graduated from college had deteriorated almost entirely to the point that all you could hear was, whoosh, whoosh, a little bit of, and you could hear a little bit of music, and then it would fade away to nothing. And then a little bit of something would come back in, But I'm pretty sure that just me listening to it that one time now has destroyed it to ever be heard again. Because most of the things of this world—now, I know you're all horribly disappointed that you will never get to hear me on the radio in college. But most of the things in this world are ephemeral. They don't last. They disappear. I mean, many things in this world we expect to be such— we, we, we expect a, a flyer for a, a lost dog to be taken down when the dog is found. There are certain things that we don't ex- expect to last for posterity to be, to be around for, for generations. But the reality is what John is saying is the world and its desires pass away. Everything around you is ephemeral. Everything is here but for a moment. Everything is passing away in this world. Except the man who does the will of God. The true believer, the true follower of Jesus, he or she will live forever. The things of this world don't last. And and you see it even, not just, we don't have to get all the way to the end of history for you to see that the things of this world don't last. I mean, that new toy that you had to have as a kid, right? I mean, think of that thing that you really, really wanted. So many of them just pass away within a day or two or maybe it's even as the gift is opened and the box is more fun than the toy that was inside but the same happens for us that new car doesn't stay new very long the things of this world are ephemeral they do not last but john is telling us the one who does the will of god will live forever this is the gift of eternal life that he has been speaking about that if you love God and follow after him, then you have life everlasting. You have it right now, and it will last forever. And yet, the, 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 the way John is describing it is not merely that, that we need to just stop loving the world and then just start being better at loving other people, better at loving God. No, when he, when he describes here the will of God, he's talking then specifically about what is God's will for us. Well, we, we know God's will because John tells us repeatedly. And, and it, perhaps the, the most clear place is, is if you flip back to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. So, so we're leaving 1 John. We'll come back so you can stick your bullets in there to, to find it quickly. But, but go to the Gospel of John. And so it's just labeled John in your Bibles. It's, it follows Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's before the book of Acts. It's the account that John wrote of the life of Jesus. And in John, chapter 6, Jesus, having fed the, the 5,000 and then walked on water, Jesus now explains why he came. Not merely to give people a meal, which will be digested and then done with, but to give them life eternal. And so in John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says to the listening crowd, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me? Jesus is saying, I came not merely to, to seek after the things of this world, not merely for my own pleasure. I came to do the will of God who sent me. And now verse 39 of John chapter 6. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Father's will is the grand purpose of history. It's the rescue of sinners. Jesus says, I will hold on to you forever. I'll lose none of you. None whom God has given me. In verse 40, everyone who looks to the Son, who trusts in Jesus for salvation, and believes in Jesus, shall have eternal life. And so what are, we, what are we being told then in 1 John when, when, when he tells us to, to do the will of God who lives forever? What is the will of God? It's to look to Jesus and believe in him. And he'll, he'll be more explicit as he goes through the, the rest of this book. He'll, he'll say the will of God is to believe in Jesus and to show the love of Jesus to others. See, but you and I need, we need first to look to Jesus. See, if if you miss that, that, that point, then you've missed the context that we have in 1 John, because I only read three verses to us. But if you read it and say, stop loving the world, start loving God. Kevin, stop loving the world. Kevin, start loving God. Then who am I trusting? Kevin. Well, we know where that goes, either to despair in my failure, ultimately, or boasting in my Temporary success. But what is John really telling us in the context? Remember, the, the context is verse 12. I write to you, dear children, I write to you, church, because your sins have been forgiven on account of Jesus' name. Or, or look back to, to verse 2 of 1 John chapter 2. Jesus Christ is the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so what is the answer? Kevin, stop loving the world. Jesus loves you. Now, you can love the Father. See, the love of Jesus is essential in this equation. Because otherwise, all I would be doing is doubling down on the boasting of what I have and do, on the lust of, of, of what I see around me. I need to turn my attention from the things of this world to the one who came from another world. The one who came from heaven, who gave his life for me, who forgave my sins, who is the atoning sacrifice for my sins. When we seek God's will, then we are freed from the control of lust. We are freed from the tyranny of our sinful desires because Jesus destroys our pride. Because to come to Jesus forces you to admit your helplessness. The starting point for you today If you want to be one who does the will of God, is to look to Jesus, to trust in him, to admit your sinfulness. But the continuing path for you as one who wants to do the will of God is to look to Jesus, to turn from sin, to admit your helplessness, to trust fully and totally in in Jesus. We are enabled to do the will of the Father. And that's an active command. It's it's the, the continuous work that we must do looking to Jesus, following after Jesus. He gives the gifts of eternal life. He gives us joy in doing the will of God the Father and showing us the love of God. Now, last year, IKEA took that 2002 commercial and they fixed it. They kind of recognized that culturally, we've gotten from the place where, like, just throwing away a perfectly good lamp seems totally irresponsible. So they put out a new commercial. It begins the next morning, that same sad little red lamp looking longingly up at its home. But then you see little yellow boots come into the screen. A little girl turns the lamp face toward her and picks up the lamp and puts it in her wagon and takes it home. She has rescued the sad little lamp. She goes home and finds a new Ikea bulb whose price pops up onto the screen. Only $1.49. She scrolls it in and basks in the glow of the light. She plays with the lamp, plays board games with her family. She makes shadow puppets. She reads with her parents before bed. And the commercial ends with the little lamp, with its happy ending. Now in the window, and then the same actor pops onto the screen. And this time, he he says, many of you feel happy for this lamp. That's not crazy. Rescuing things is much better than the same logo appears on the screen. A much more self-aware, a much more self-conscious kind of commercial, much more responsible commercial. Yet I'm not really sure their motives have changed all that much. Have they? Yeah, you don't need to waste money on a new lamp because this one still works. But that money you saved could be spent on a very nice sofa. And you can get it very cheaply because we'll make you do all of the work of putting it together. See, while the advertising message may have changed, our desires haven't. Right? Right? We still want the new thing. The lamp is new to the little girl. The same desires are at work in our lives. Even if we save money by reusing the the old lamp, we're just going to spend it elsewhere. But that line of reusing things is much better. Of rescuing, it's much better. Because the little girl rescued lamp. See, the biblical answer to our desires gets at their very core where our desires begin. God transforms our hearts so that we can do the will of God. It involves the active denial of the love of this world, turning from the lust of our eyes, turning and rejecting the boasting of our accomplishments, because we turn to Jesus. We find in him the love of God, because Jesus is our rescuer. See, the emotional impact of the commercial is that the lamp is rescued. Someone has come along just as the trash truck pulls up to the curb and the trash is being dumped in. The little girl saves the lamp. The world and its desires pass away. You were headed toward destruction. And yet you have been rescued because Jesus did the will of the Father. Jesus gave his life for you. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will